All I ever wanted was to sing to God. He gave me that longing and then made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If you didn't want me to praise him with music, why implant the desire? Like a lust in my body, and then deny me the talent. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. All right, well, Tatum, welcome back for another round. Woohoo! Uh, what have you been watching this week? Well, uh, it's only been a few days since we recorded our last episode, so I haven't watched too much. I I tried to actually make it out to the theater to see Ooh. a movie called Past Lives. Um, I was going to go to a matinee yesterday, uh, but I had some major plumbing issues oh, in my no. apartment and could not leave all day long. Oh, so, the joys of being a renter. <laughs> Yeah, so unfortunately I did not get to go see that, but hopefully before our next episode I can report on that. Um, but yeah, aside from that, uh, I don't know if people... Well, actually I'm not going to say this. I was going to say I'm not working because of the writer's strike, but who knows? Maybe <laughs> lightning will strike and by the time this is released there will no longer be a <laughs> Probably not, but... Um, yeah, so I, um, aside from that, the only thing that I, which I didn't even watch that, I was just planning to watch it and didn't watch it, but I actually have been uh, continuing my rewatch of Game of Thrones. I, you know, <laughs> I didn't even it, know you had started one, but I, I feel like I always figure well, that you're always on a rewatch of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, it's I just feel on like a it's continuous a loop I, in the background of your apartment. I was literally going to say that I feel like it is a show where I kind of rewatch it every year but because I've seen it so many times it's not something where I watch it you know every day it's kind of like oh I'll watch a season and then I'll take a month off and then I'll watch another season then I'll take a few months off and then so it's kind of like I just watch it whenever I want to but on average I do typically watch it all the way through (laughs) once a year um but yeah that I have been just binging game of thrones uh but particularly uh the end of season five moving into season six Mm -hmm. uh which is basically the final season of the show that's not incredibly frustrating um yeah although i well season seven i think is absolutely terrible season eight i don't think is as bad as people think uh no it's true i agree yeah i i don't know why people hate season eight so much and just forget that season seven was an absolute just stupid season of television um but uh what was i gonna say um oh yeah it's interesting watching it now knowing because this is actually i haven't watched season six in a hot minute and it's interesting watching season six again knowing how far the show goes down after this season because it makes me a lot more frustrated watching season six like i can't appreciate it as much because they're setting up all of these things that I know they're either just going to completely drop and never address again, or they're just going to not deliver on them in a way that's satisfying. Um, so that's 
kind of frustrating, like going back to the season where they're really, really setting up this great anticipation of, you know, the Night King is coming and the White Walkers are coming and Bran needs to get ready and he's doing his training to learn everything before they come. And, you know, we're we're building up the armies to take back Winterfell and yada, 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 yada. Um, and Daenerys, you know, just continuing her journey of trying to get to Westeros, but getting distracted <laughs> over and over again. Um but yeah, it's just, it's, and like just seeing Tyrion kind of, Tyrion and Varys coming together to join Daenerys of like, this is going to be the dream team of, of the three of them with, you know, Jorah and all these people. And then Arya is doing her training with the, um, with the faceless men to serve the, you know, the faceless God. And, and as we all know, that doesn't really get any sort of, I mean, in my opinion, satisfactory ending to that story arc. I don't think there's a satisfactory end to Bran's story arc. I don't think there's a satisfactory end What are you talking about? Like, Bran has the best story out of all uh, of them. Ugh. Like, all of these people, Daenerys, Varys, Tyrion, Bran, Arya, all of these people that they're really, really setting up in this season, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh man, I'm pumped. And then I remember, oh wait, never mind, I'm not pumped anymore. <laughs> so... It's it's an interesting experience watching it now. It's still it's still a good season. I like seasons five and six. Um, not that they're without their flaws, but I do like seasons five and six. But knowing that it just it doesn't it doesn't play out is a little bit upsetting. But it's fine because I'll just read the books and it's gonna be fine. Um, but yeah, so. That's that's what I've been watching. <laughs> what about you, Geneva? Um, well, like you said, it's only been a few days since we last recorded, so I've really only seen a couple things. But the major one that I wanted to mention is that... So I, I mentioned, I think, on the podcast oh, that I've been doing... Oh, I know what this is. Yes. I know what this yes. is. So I've just recently finished Twin Peaks, going through it for the first time with my brother. Great, great show. And so I finally went and watched Twin Peaks... Firewalk with me, which was the oh, film yeah. that was made in I think ninety two, like a couple of years after the the movie ended. If anyone has, I'm assuming many people <laughs> potentially listening to this have not seen Twin Peaks or Firewalk with me, but basically, so Twin Peaks is at least the jumping off point of the show is uh, the murder of Laura Palmer, who's this um, teenager in a small Pacific Northwest town. The show covers the investigation into her murder as well as a bunch of other things that come up throughout the show. It's very surreal. There's a lot of kind of weird um, magical realist <laughs> elements and bizarre kind of what is reality, what is not um, things that bleed through. The movie is a prequel which covers um, in part uh, an earlier murder that is related to Laura Palmer's murder, but also more, um, more importantly, it covers, it follows Laura Palmer basically in the week up to her death. So it covers all of the events that are, you know, unfold during the mystery of the show. We finally get to see them on screen, actually see what she went through. And I'm not going to spoil anything except to say it is fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> it is so good. 
And when I say good, I mean it is so visceral and upsetting. <laughs> I'm just going to say. It's very dark. It is very, very dark. It definitely um, takes advantage of the fact that it is not a TV show on shown on broadcast TV. It is a movie which can show much more graphic elements that were hinted at in the show and actually depict them in a more explicit way. But it really does... Yeah, it... it the the performance of the lead actress Cheryl Lee who plays Laura Palmer I mm, don't know if I've ever so seen her in anything apart from Twin Peaks and of course in Twin Peaks you know she's mostly in kind of still photographs or she has this part where she the plays red her room. um she's in the red room yeah she gets to, she plays her sort of doppelganger cousin for <laughs> a while on the yep. show um which is a funny sort of soap opera yeah soap opera e element but this is the first time we've gotten to see her play laura herself for an extended period of time and she is i have no mm -hmm. idea why she didn't become the hugest thing ever after this her performance is so incredible she just absolutely conveys the fullest range of emotions of this girl who is at the end of her rope and is terrified and feels like things are closing in on her and things are just building to a fever pitch and she can't escape and you know she tries to to escape temporarily through you know these sort of um, rebelling against her parents and teenage pursuits and drugs and sex and alcohol and things like that but there's this sense of doomedness <laughs> to her and just her fear but her defiance but her um you know, her intelligence and her, um, the, just everything about her that you understand why she is so, why she was such a, um, a vivid character in the lives of all of these town folks in Twin Peaks, why her death affected them so much, but also how lonely and frightened she was before she died and how, yeah, just how awful her death was. And, um, watch Twin Peaks and then go watch Firewalk with me. It is an absolutely unbelievable experience. I finished the movie and just kind of went around in a daze for a couple hours. Felt like I was just <laughs> completely drained of all emotion, all ability to think and feel, um, which is what the best art can do to us sometimes. So, yeah. David Lynch, man. David Lynch. <laughs> I I sincerely hope that now that you've finished Twin Peaks, uh, and I include Firewalk with me in that. Mm -hmm. and, and I need to see The Return. Seen, That's next on my list. Right. I would love, now that you've finished Twin Peaks and also you've seen Mulholland Drive, I would love to see you do a David Lynch binge. Uh, yeah. He, I mean, he's got such a, such a crazy filmography that is just all over the place, but so so artistically inspiring and original and so David Lynch. Mm -hmm. um, he's probably one of the most auteurs of all film auteurs <laughs> to ever exist apart from Dune. Um, but, <laughs> but I, yeah, what would you kind of put at the, you know, if I've seen Mulholland drive, I've seen twin peaks, what would you say is kind of the, the next couple of things on the list that I should investigate? I mean, I mean, one of my personal favorites, but it might not connect with you. It might be a little bit too weird. Um, but I, I mean, I think that um, not not Elephant Man. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. Oh, Eraserhead. 
a razor head. Like I mm. love a razor head. I think that was the first thing that I watched after finishing Twin Peaks. It's a really nice transition because Twin Peaks is really weird. Mm-hmm. And a razor head is probably his other piece that he's made that is like it's very very yeah. very weird um like so that could be like a smooth transition my understanding um, of a racer head is that it doesn't really have a narrative it's much more of a kind of surrealist like almost an unshan andalu type of thing is that accurate or or is there some narrative it's just a lot of weirdness as well um i would say that any narrative that exists kind of becomes inconsequential five minutes after you <laughs> so, so like all right it, it's not it's not that it's a nonsense movie that you finish it and you're like that had no point mm-hmm. but at the same time it's it, i don't think it's a movie that's meant to be followed it's okay. which is why i'm saying like i don't know if you'll like it because i know that you really like to analyze and find meaning and things like that mm-hmm. and this is a movie where it's like literally there's a scene which is one of my favorite film scenes to ever be captured and put on screen literally a scene where a family sits at a dinner table for minutes long and they just sit there in silence staring at each other making weird faces (laughs) and it is literally one of my favorite movie scenes ever but you know Mm -hmm. so it's just it's it's pretty weird but it's great uh but i a lot of people really love blue velvet um that one hasn't connected with me as much i think i should rewatch it Mm -hmm. um but a lot of people that's their favorite lynch film um, Lost Highways, fun. Like, you know, th- there's just, yeah. th- there's so much. So much, yeah. Um, I, my brother and I, now that we've um, finished Twin Peaks together, when we get together, we want next, you know, in the same room. We want to see Dune together <laughs> just for the fun oh, of it. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's, it's, yeah. I remember when I found out Sting was in that movie, I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Why, why is Sting in this? This is so weird. <laughs> Playing the Austin Butler no, no shame, role, I believe. No shame against Sting. I I love Sting. Yeah. He's great. But like, why is he in Dune? This is weird. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I don't know. I would say I would say uh, dive into Eraserhead and Blue Velvet next, and then go from there. See see if you're still if you're still into him after that. And I would say that if you are not into him after that you probably don't need to keep going but if you're like yeah this is really interesting i want to see more of his stuff watch all of it it's great all right yeah well no certainly will do anyway yeah that was a long that was a long portion of things but david lynch man he's worth talking about so i would love to see him make one more thing before he passes but i don't think he will because he's spending so much time painting right now oh is he really Oh, he's been a painter for decades. Like he's a very, that. he's a very talented painter. Um, well, that's amazing. Plus I think Good he's also kind of losing his mind. A little bit. <laughs> I mean, uh, do you know, do you know about his, his YouTube videos that what? he did during the, during lockdown? No. Wait, what? Oh my gosh. I don't remember if it was YouTube or if it was like Instagram or whatever. I think it was YouTube. Um, but he would get on live. I think it must've been Instagram then he would get on live every single day and say, good morning everyone or good afternoon whatever it is and you just be like it is 10 32 in the morning and it is 68 degrees and then that was it <laughs> like, like every day he would just get on and say like the day the time the weather and just be like see you tomorrow and be good like be good to each other <laughs> that <laughs> truly great. sounds like a character from Twin Peaks, if Twin Peaks was extended uh-huh. into the 21st century, that's what a character yeah. in town would be doing. He he had these like really like huge 
dark sunglasses on he would sit like in this wooden creaky chair by a window and it's like i'm pretty sure he's losing his mind but i'm here for it (laughs) good for him all right today on the show we are discussing a personal favorite of mine the 1984 film amadeus directed by milos forman and starring tom hulse as the classical composer wolfgang amadeus mozart and f murray abraham as his jealous rival antonio salieri The film is told through the eyes of the elderly Salieri, who is committed to an asylum after attempting to commit suicide, as he recounts his story to a priest. As a young man, Salieri adored music and begged God to give him the talent that would make his name immortal. Although he eventually attains a high-ranking position as a court composer to the Austrian emperor Joseph II, Salieri knows that his music is only mediocre. But then Salieri meets Mozart, a prodigy whose otherworldly talent seems to indicate that he has been divinely chosen. In contrast to the beauty of his music, Mozart himself is vulgar, arrogant, and immature. And Salieri immediately resents the idea that he has been favored with divine gifting. He dedicates himself to a war against God by secretly plotting to ruin Mozart's career, and eventually succeeds in driving him into his grave. Now, the real Mozart, who is considered to be one of the most famous and influential of all the classical composers, was born in Austria in 1756. Um, Short history lesson, just for context, young Mozart was, was considered a child prodigy. His father, Leopold, monetized his musical gifts for fame and fortune and Uh, took him on a tour throughout all of Europe. As an adult, Mozart's reputation grew throughout Europe as the brilliant and prolific composer of just dozens of concertos, symphonies, and operas. However, exhaustion, financial difficulties, and ill health began to take their toll, and Mozart tragically died at only 36 years old. After his death, rumors began to spread that he'd been murdered, although there's actually very little evidence of this. Many of the rumors centered on his colleague at the Austrian court, fellow composer Antonio Salieri. Um, In 1979, playwright Peter Schaefer used these rumors as the starting point for his play, Amadeus, which won the Tony Award for Best Play in 1981. Film director Milos Forman, who had previously won the Academy Award for Best Director in 1976 for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, saw the play performed and vowed to turn it into a movie. He worked with Schaefer for months to adapt the play's highly stylized dialogue into something a bit more natural and suitable for film, including adding scenes of Mozart alone that were not from the perspective of Salieri. With the help of producer Paul Zanz, Foreman cast the movie with relative unknowns, believing that the music of Mozart would be the film's main star. And he decided to film it in Prague, which was then behind the Iron Curtain, because it looked almost exactly the same as it did in Mozart's day. Even though the film is a period piece, Foreman worked to give it a feeling of naturalism that would bring audiences in. Most of the actors speak in their natural American accents, rather than affecting German accents, and the the lyrics of the operas that are performed in the movie are translated from German and Italian into English. The score, which consisted entirely of Mozart's music and a few extra pieces by Salieri, was recorded by conductor Sir Neville Mariner and his chamber orchestra, the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, while legendary choreographer Twyla Tharp was hired to stage the opera scenes. All right, Tatum, um, as I said, this movie is one of my all-time favorites. Um, I know that we you've seen it before. I think I actually showed it to you <laughs> Um, that was the first time you'd ever seen it. So what were your thoughts on rewatching it this time around? 
And actually, yes. sorry, I should, Ooh, yeah. before we say anything, um, uh, so if anyone is not aware, there are two versions of the film Amadeus. There's the theatrical cut that aired in 1984, but then there was a director's cut that was released in, I think, 2002. And um, the director's cut is much more accessible. Um, I had actually, despite having seen this movie like half a dozen to a dozen times, I had actually never seen the the theatrical cut before. I had only had the director's cut, but I was able to get my hands on the theatrical cut. So that's what I watched this time around. Um, But anyway, we can talk about that later. Um, But yes. Yeah. Okay. So this movie is... I, I, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this movie because on the one hand, I love, I I love what this movie is doing in terms of the questions that it's asking, the points that it's trying to make about being a human and the things that matter and, you know, wanting something badly and having talent versus not having talent and what's true art. And I absolutely love all of the themes of this movie. I love the themes of this movie. But for some reason, this movie is not like a hit out of the ballpark for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know why, because it's incredibly well made. It's beautiful. It's well shot. The acting is phenomenal. The costumes are great. Like everything about this movie is very well done but for some reason there's a little bit of a disconnect for me mm-hmm. so i i so i don't know how to say if i i mean it's not that whether i like it or i don't like it because i definitely like it it's not that i don't like the movie it sounds like it's, it's just, a case of i appreciate the movie it just doesn't connect with me personally i don't know if it's that though because i found myself by the end of this movie, I was very invested. Mm. And I really, I think the second half for me, I connect with a lot more than the first half. And Mm. like the first half of this movie, I'm going to be honest, I kind of was like zoning out a lot (laughs) because I just was like, okay. Mm -hmm. But the second half, I was way more invested. So I can't quite put my finger on where the specific disconnect is for me. Because I feel like this is a movie where I would like... Obviously, we can go about this conversation however you want to go about it. But for me, if I was leading this podcast or leading a discussion on this movie, I would talk more so about the themes of this movie as opposed to the actual sequences of the film, if that makes sense. Because I like the questions that it's asking and what it's getting at more so than what I actually see on screen, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um and it's not that I don't like what's on the screen. It's just like I, I can't put my finger on what it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I like this movie. I definitely like this movie, but like I said, it's not a hit out of the ballpark for me because there's just something about it that I I don't know that I just don't connect with. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it because I'm hoping that like, because I'm an external processor. (laughs) So I'm hoping that the more you and I talk about it, we can maybe bring out of me a little bit more, either why it doesn't connect with me as much, or I can connect with it more through Mm -hmm. talking about it more. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I I was happy to watch it again. But that being said, like, this is not a movie that I, unless, unless forced, I will probably not watch this movie (laughs) again. Um, Just because it's not something that I really like I'm dying to watch again. Yeah. So 
I don't understand, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think it's a very, very phenomenal film. And mm-hmm. I, I greatly, greatly like what it's asking. But for some reason, there's a little something that just, ah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and it makes me so mad because there's nothing I can point to that's like, this is the bad part of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, there are no bad parts to this movie. So I don't know what's going on here. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of my, those are my initial, initial thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's totally legit. It is it is such a personal film for me, but I've also watched it in context where people are like, I don't understand. Like, why is this movie considered to be so good? Why is this movie? Like, <laughs> why do people like this movie? Like, I literally, that literally happened to me once. I was doing a, um, I had a, a friend group that were doing a, a watch through all the best picture winners. And when the movie ended, someone in the group was like, I don't understand. Why is this considered to be like one of the best movies? Like, do people actually like this movie? And I was like, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> like I'm just like verbal diarrhea, like trying to explain everything I love about this movie. And probably just I can see why people confusing. like it. I can see why people like it. I, I more so can see why people like it than I can see why I don't like it. If that makes sense. <laughs> like, I, I understand why people like it. I don't understand why I don't necessarily like it as much as other people. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie to me, I mean, like I said, it's it's just a very personal movie for me in many ways. I have a really long history with this movie. My mom is a um, musician. She's a piano teacher and a choir director. And she really loves classical music. I grew up around classical music quite a lot. Quite a bit. She introduced me to this movie. Um, it it was just a very, <laughs> you know, I mean, Tatum, we we talked about Whiplash a few weeks ago and how strongly you identify with the Miles Teller character as this person mm-hmm. who is trying to create art and has this really perfectionist tendency and, you know, really, really um, cares about, you know, the 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 creation of art to um to an almost fanatical extreme not obviously not as much as or not to the degree that miles teller is in that movie but like you can see that those tendencies in yourself for me that is how i feel about salieri in this movie um i you know i i went to two um educational institutions i have degrees from two educational institutions that are two of the best in the world and yeah she did i (laughs) geneva is very smart you guys uh like and i'm not saying this to brag quite the opposite um you know i some of my classmates are now like published authors and you know extremely respected scientists and and you know there's politicians and royalty and things that went to the the schools that i went to and so you know for me this movie particularly the the years after leaving undergrad i remember this movie being really really important to me because i remember and still struggle with the the same feelings of inadequacy that salieri has in this movie this feeling that i can see what talent looks like and i can see what greatness looks like but i don't have it and i there's no way for me to get it. That's not true. That's not true. Thank you. <laughs> this, this is not me belittling your takeaway and your connection with this movie. That is valid. But as your friend, that's 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 not true. Thank anyway, you. Continue. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> but you know, like that is that is a, a a struggle that you know I've had my entire life to one degree or another. Um, and I just think this movie does such a great job of conveying that sort of 
very human feeling of I have ambitions that I can't fulfill and I have a degree of um, I have desires that the universe has not set me up to ever be achieved and that sort of confusion and um, anger and frustration that can come from that. Now, I <laughs> I dealt with it in a very different way than Salieri deals with his feelings. You know, Salieri's response is to be lash out at God himself and attempt to murder someone. And I'm more like, well, let me see if I can find my niche somewhere else, find fulfillment in other ways. But yeah, those sort of feelings of, of inadequacy and um, um, self, like, um, you know, feeling like you're not enough it's something I understand very strongly. And so this this movie is very personal to me, <laughs> largely for that reason, is because it was um, something that was rolling around in my head quite a bit um, in those years after I graduated from undergrad. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? You know, how am I ever going to measure up to, you know, all of these amazing privileges and opportunities that have been afforded to me? So, yeah, that's kind of my <laughs> history with the movie. Um, seen it many, many times over the years. And um, uh, yeah, I'm like <laughs> struggling to know like even how to talk about it because they're just rewatching it now. So I, like I said before, I watched the theatrical cut for the first time in my life uh, this time around. And I'm like, seriously, I think this is one of the best movies ever made. And I think, <laughs> I honestly think theatrical cut is much better than the director's cut. Oh, and I love the director's cut. Yeah, I think it's just more tight and streamlined. Like the things that mm -hmm. were eliminated from the director's cut, I think are things that did not need to be there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I agree with you that like there's the the plot of this movie, it, it is kind of episodic. It's almost hard to talk through. Um, in an actual linear way, it kind of is much more about the themes and the vibes. Well, can I just say, uh, well, first of all, mm -hmm. I feel like, I mean, depending on how much we talk about your own personal connection to Salieri in this podcast, which we might talk about a lot more, we might not. But whenever you talk about it, I will bring up that, Geneva, this is not true. None of these things are true. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Thank you. You, um, you don't need to. Because they're, they're genuinely not. Thank you. Um, but anyway, just I just wanted to say that. Um, but also, I find I think that this probably has to do with the difference in our not our not our interpretations, but with how and why we connect with this movie differently. Mm -hmm. Because you connect with Salieri's character, I connect with Mozart's character. Not at all saying that I am a genius. <laughs> no, like, but that Mozart, makes sense. That's where like, you would position your, yourself in the, the yeah, movie. Yeah. I I absolutely am not sitting here saying that I am I don't want people to think that I'm like, oh yes, I'm the next Mozart because I absolutely <laughs> the am Mozart freaking not like I no, I I'm aware that Anyway, I'm aware of my talent limitations and whatever. So I just need to put that out there. <laughs> um, but that being said, I find myself connecting a lot more with his character. You know, his his evenings of, you know, writing through the night because he has to get something out or feeling this pressure to create something at, at a time when he's not feeling inspired, but his livelihood is dependent on it. And just, you know, just all of these different things of yeah there's just a lot more with Mozart that I connect to versus with Salieri um and Salieri I actually really don't like at all and we'll we'll get into this I mean Salieri is not someone that I um 
is not someone that I'm going to like put in a lot of effort to try and empathize with. Um, but I don't necessarily think that we're supposed to, because I do think that Salieri is supposed to be a character that is problematic. And I think the movie owns up to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we especially get a hint, not a hint, but like, we definitely see that in the final sequence of the movie when he's basically like saying, I pardon all of you people. And it's like, who, what's wrong with you? Um, but anyway, I don't know if you have any response to that, but no, yeah, yeah. and I 100% agree with you. I mean, Salieri is the villain of this movie. Like, I don't think that the movie has any makes any bones about that. This is very much a sort of you know Paradise Lost told from the perspective of Satan. Or to give a modern example, I walked out of the first time I ever saw Hamilton. I walked out of it and was like, oh, that's just Amadeus. <laughs> like this oh, is. I thought you meant you walked out of Hamilton. What? Like, no. <laughs> like, I was like, what? Good heavens. What? <laughs> no, 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 no. When Hamilton anyway. ended, <laughs> yes, gotcha. I walked out of it and said, "Oh, that's just Amadeus," because it is, again, the sort of um, the rivalry of the the genius versus his jealous rival, and it's told from the perspective, sort of, of the the jealous rival. Um, but it is, yeah, it, it this movie is a tragedy. I mean, it 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 is this person who is so delusional and trapped in his own um this sort of hell of his own making that he just by the end has completely abandoned any sort of pretense or any sort of you know he he goes out at the end he's like i am the high priest of mediocrity and i absolve all of you and it it is one of those things where it's like you don't you know i as someone who identifies with salieri i don't say that i am him but i you know he speaks to parts of my soul, like dark parts of my right. soul, you yeah. know? Like, mm-hmm. I I have moments where I'm just like, I absolve you <laughs> as the priest of mediocrity, you know? You, like, well, you just, okay. sometimes you just have feelings like what, that. What does, what does that mean for you? Because I think... I think it's possible to interpret that in lots of different ways. So what does that mean for you, either for yourself or for the character of Salieri? What does it mean to to absolve people as, you know, the the height of mediocrity? I think he's, by the end, he's like, he, I mean, what does it mean to sort of absolve someone of their sins? It's like, to be mediocre is, it's like he had seen that as a sort of sin against the universe. And by the end, he's just saying, let's all be be free and revel in how mediocre we are in a sense. Mm. He's like, he's finally abandoned something and it's Mm -hmm. not like, it's not abandoning it in a positive way necessarily, but it's that sort of, I have finally freed myself of any sort of pretense toward excellence, any sort of idea of being held to some sort of higher standard or aspiring towards some sort of greater purpose. And I'm just kind of, kind of gonna be the um the standard bearer i guess of all Hmm. of those who feel like they are like me Mm -hmm. yeah gosh i really hate (laughs) salary he sucks he sucks he's so he's so antithetical to everything that i stand for (laughs) and live for like he really Mm -hmm. is i'm like I, I'm sorry. I'm like, I well, have expand no place on that for, actually, because just, I feel like you as a one for anyone out there who <laughs> understands what that follows the Enneagram and understands what that means. Um, like, I actually am very, very curious to hear your perspective on him as speaking yeah. from your own experience as the one. I absolutely despise him. Um, I think I just 
I can't I don't appreciate when people just want to have a pity party mm-hmm. and they don't take ownership of their lives and in my opinion if you are passionate about something and things aren't going your way or you think that you're too average or whatever that might be I think that kind of similar to what you were saying about in your life which this is not me agreeing that you are average (laughs) but this is me agreeing with like with with your personal interpretation that you said prior Mm -hmm. I think that there are other ways to succeed in whatever thing you might be passionate about. It might not be this direct route that you might have dreamed it to be, but there are other ways that you can find success and tap into these passions that you Mm -hmm. have. And so the fact that he just kind of is so stubborn about this dream that he has while also being aware that it's never going to happen, but instead of trying to adjust or make any sort of change to actually find some sort of success or some sort of pride in himself or in his life or Mm -hmm. whatever, he just gives up at a very young age and wants to have a pity party for himself for literally the rest of his life. And he just, he just, he just feels bad for himself. And that just reminds me of my father growing up. My dad was always like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Don't feel sorry for yourself. All of these, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. was literally like a mantra that I was raised by of, you know, there's no, there, there's no place in this world for people who feel sorry for themselves because that's just, that doesn't cut it. And the fact that he doesn't just live in his own pit of misery, but he also projects that onto the person who has talent and tries to take them down. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, you, you've, instead of taking decades to reinvent yourself and, and find something that brings you joy and purpose in your life, you're instead spending decades trying to tear this other person down who's actually doing, well, I mean, not, he's got his own issues, yeah. but um, I, I don't know. I just think that his his unwillingness to like move he needs to move on I guess is what I'm saying he refuses Mm -hmm. to move on from this fact that he has this passion for this specific thing that he's not gifted in at least in the way that he thinks he should be and I'm like he is gifted far more I mean than he's working, of the he's working with emperors and, and you know mm-hmm. and they're looking to him yeah. to hear his opinions on clearly he is very you know capable mm-hmm. we see at the end when he's doing the writing of everything that Mozart is like basically telling to him out loud he clearly is very versed and very skilled musically mm-hmm. and he has a lot of privilege I think even more than Mozart in a lot of ways because by the end Mozart is I mean kind of he dug his own grave because he yeah. drank so much but Salieri by the end he's actually in a better position than Mozart is oh, but throughout he, their both of their careers he's in a better position than Mozart is because he is the better he is far better as a player of the sort of political games of court he's far better at selling himself he's far better at um being liked by other people I mean Mozart's obnoxious <laughs> people, <laughs> Mozart is constantly offending other people yeah he's constantly like saying things that are just offhandedly arrogant even if he doesn't necessarily mean them you know he's constantly rubbing people the wrong way Salieri is Salieri is so much better at the game of being liked by other people and what I think is so what I find so compelling about the tragedy of this movie is is that we you see throughout the film so many ways in which Salieri 
could have still been working in music, but could mm-hmm. have set himself up to have a, a a really special and important place, even if he is not going to be a Mozart. He could have used his influence to be a um, a champion for Mozart and be, you know, helping to get Mozart's music out, helping to smooth off his rough edges. Like he could have partnered with Mozart in that way. There are so many things that he could have done. And yet the tragedy is that he cannot conceive of himself or any pattern for his career that does not involve him as the sole and only genius, basically, you know, as the the one center of the universe, the one name that everyone will whisper. He can't conceive of a, an area of life, a fulfilling view of his life that involves being someone who is in a support position for another person. Um, or yeah. involves being maybe, you know, a second tier composer. He says, it's all or nothing. I have to be the one immortal genius or my entire life is a failure. And so Which he is delusional. Mm-hmm. Absolutely delusional. I'm sorry. No, and it anyone is. Anyone who lives their life under that sort of mentality of, well, it's kind of like the uh, mm-hmm. the Rory Gilmore <laughs> mentality. <laughs> like, I need to have everything or not nothing at all. But I just think it's completely selfish and prideful to have that sort of mentality and then take it out on other people. And it's like he's pointing his finger at God saying, God, why would you give me this passion and not give Mm -hmm. me the talent? And I'm just thinking he did or not. He sorry. (laughs) Um, God did give you talent musically. It's just not in the way that you supposedly want. But if you actually pay attention to all of these things that you're you know, praying for from a young child, from the from a young age, you would recognize that God actually answered your prayers, but you're just not willing to like hear it or listen yeah. to it. It just there's so many things about his character. <laughs> yeah, like, no, absolutely. I, hate I mean, you. I I hate you. Yeah, I mean, the bargain that he strikes as a child is very much like, you know, it's basically I will. It it's like, <laughs> I mean, to use a to use a term that um not everyone's going to be familiar with, but it's like the sort of prosperity gospel idea that if you Mm -hmm. act in a certain way, then God is going to reward you. And he says, I'm going to, I will dedicate myself. I will be chaste. I will, you know, be this good person. And in return, and I'm going to write music that's for God's glory, quotation marks, but in return, God is going to make my name immortal. And it's that sort of, Like, you're not actually doing this because you have any sort of religious fervor. You're not doing this for the the love of music in its own. You are doing this because you want your own name to be immortal. You want the fame. You want the glory. You know, you're not doing it for any sort of altruistic or or nobler motive. It's purely pride. That's what it is, uh, whether it's religious or not. Yeah, I mean, I think, I do think that he does, I think initially... It's not just him wanting to all of this fame. I think I think in the beginning it he does have a sense of genuinely wanting to create music that impacts other people. I don't think it starts out as just a prideful thing, but I think the longer he stays in this mentality, the more entrenched he gets in just this pride and all of those things, which is one of the reasons why, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to it, but my, and I think, I don't think this is an uncommon opinion, but my favorite sequence in this entire movie is the last sequence when Salieri and Mozart are in the room together composing. One of the reasons I really love that scene is because we see Salieri actually 
just loving the art of music. Mm. Everything else has gone away. All of the other, all of the pride is gone. All of the baggage is gone. All of the jealousy is gone. Everything is gone. It's just him and Mozart existing in this room as equals, as artists. And I'm, that's where I'm like, this is what you guys could have been this entire time. Mm. And Salieri, like you, you missed it. And I think we see at the end that Mozart was willing to have that relationship. Mozart tells him over and over again, you're the only one who supported me and all of these things throughout all these years, which of course he doesn't realize that that's actually not true. Um, but he was willing and open to have that sort of relationship with Salieri for a long time, but Salieri didn't let that happen. And so I just really like that last scene because it, it just really, I think that, art and being passionate about something and music, all of those things separately are really beautiful. And the fact that we see all of those coming together in that last sequence is just, it's my favorite sequence in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, anyway, I, I, I liked seeing him Salieri, meaning him in a place where he's just going back to his roots of, mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. Music is actually, yeah. you know, what matters to yeah. me. Absolutely. I mean, this is the this is the redeeming thing about Salieri is that, you know, 80 percent of the time he sucks, but he does have. this. Uh, I would say like 98. (laughs) (laughs) But he does have this really genuine love for and appreciation for music and for good music. And that is the other. So much so that he can recognize when that his is not good. Mm-hmm. You know, like he there's those sequences where he composes this thing and has the emperor play it. And it's like, oh not that good. And then Mozart <laughs> comes he's, and he's like, what about this? And Salieri, he knows he he knows that. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Y- you know, he, he just he knows yeah. it. So. Well, I anyway. think I think in the moment when he composes it, he thinks it's good. And mm-hmm. it, it pains him when the emperor plays it because the emperor is not a very good musician and the emperor keeps messing it up and he's like, oh no, like this is gonna, mm-hmm. this is gonna make it sound bad even though I really like it and I want Mozart to like it. But then when Mozart starts playing it and starts fiddling with it, he's like, oh crap. <laughs> like Mozart, yeah. if Mozart doesn't think it's good, I know it's not good. Like mm-hmm. I think it's because of Mozart that he can recognize that it's not good. But what I was gonna say is too is um the... Salieri's appreciation genuine appreciation for music is to me one of the redeeming things about him and the thing that gives him so much more depth and makes him so much more of an interesting person than just a villain and it's the other thing that I really identify about him too is I feel like this movie is (laughs) this movie is about many things but to me one of the things it's about is the idea of art appreciation and art criticism and the scenes in which Salieri is describing his feelings as he is listening to Mozart's music, that incredible sequence, which is one of my favorite sequences in the movie. I can't say it's my favorite because there's like five sequences in this movie that are like my favorite. But um, the first time that he hears music, uh, Mozart's music playing and he's looking at the score and he has that whole speech about how like it's, you know, it's just like a couple uh, – you know, this thing playing at top that's like a rusty squeeze box and then it's joined by an oboe and then on, by flutes and bassoons and it sweetens it into this phrase of pure delight. Like, it's just this gorgeous, gorgeous expression of describing music and translating it into human words in a way that I think really good art criticism can do. And I think that could be one potential avenue. <laughs> it could have been one potential avenue for 
Salieri is to kind of work on using his ability with language and his ability, you know, the the way that he is good with people and expressing himself and kind of use that as sort of a go between between Mozart or, or other artists and um, a general population. Obviously, he does not do that. But I just every time I read good, really good film criticism, which I love to do, and I ha- always have that moment of like, oh, man, I could never do that. I feel like such a Salieri. But I also have that moment of thinking of like Sully, that that moment that Salieri, you know, when he's he's taking a piece of art and he's almost making it extra special or allowing you to experience it again because of the way that he describes it and he turn brings it into other terms and he deepens it and he opens it up to new thoughts and new interpretations and to me that's what really good art criticism does and so yeah I just I love that part so much and that also speaks to something that I'm very interested in I, I love really good um art criticism and film criticism so yeah I, I I agree with you I think that you know that that also is a sequence that I really love in this movie I will say though that is a little bit of um a, a little bit of a of a nitpicky mm. critique that I if you if I can even use critique that I have of this movie I feel like critique is too harsh of a word just like a little something that I'm like mm, I don't know I feel like there's a kind of similar to what you were saying a few weeks back about million dollar baby when you were like, okay, the voiceover sometimes works, but then sometimes it's a little bit too much. I don't think Mm. we need it because we can see what's happening. I was going to ask if if what you thought about the framing structure of this movie. I don't mind the framing structure. I just think that we have so many sequences of Salieri doing the same thing mm-hmm. where he's sitting in that room and he's kind of talking about the same concept over and over again. And I understand what they're getting. I mean, how could I not understand what they're getting at? Cause they do it like 15 times, but I do think that, you know, I mean, Geneva, you know me, my favorite movies of all time are the Lord of the Rings trilogy and 2001 a space. Like I am not <laughs> one who shies away from long movies. I, it does not bother me. But that being said, I do feel like there are some sequences in this movie that could be cut out or not cut out, but shortened maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's what the theatrical cut would be. I'm not sure. But I do think that there might be a few too many of these sequences of him sitting down and talking about the magic of Mozart's music mm-hmm. or of the compose the compositions or whatever. Um, and then also, I think... Uh, these are like my three my three critiques if I can even use the word critique Mm -hmm. that one being I think there's too many of those two being I think that kind of going along with the same thing of scenes that could be shortened or cut out or whatever I think this is a pet peeve that I have with just any sort of movie or tv show that does this but when you have a sequence where it's some sort of stage performance Mm -hmm. And you show the entire stage (laughs) performance. Uh I'm like, I don't need to watch an entire play inside of a movie. You mean you don't need an entire like town musical in the middle of an episode of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? No, no. I skip them every time. And I also um, watching watching Game of Thrones, watching season six right now. Mm. There's so many sequences of Arya finding this woman in the market who's like a, you know, she's an actress in this play. 
oh my gosh and there's so many long sequences of her acting this whole play out on the stage and i skip it every time so anyway that's just kind of a thing across the board of anything that i watch i'm like sure i am watching this show or this movie for this thing i don't need a five to ten minute aside of something else just put it in there for 30 seconds and i'll get the gist and let's move on Mm -hmm. and so there are sequences in this movie where it's um it's like an opera or some sort of performance where I don't mind it when the camera is turned and we see Mozart and he's actually composing not composing conducting. he's conducting mm-hmm. I like that but when it's just let's watch an opera for five minutes I'm like I don't want to do this aside from the one that's about his dad I think that that's important but even so it's in my opinion, too long. Um, So that's my second little nitpick. And then my third one, and then this is it. These are the only nitpicks that I have. The third one is that, and this, this again is just a thing across the board, not necessarily specifically having to do with this film. I really struggle with, with like elderly makeup and prosthetics. (laughs) I think that the older version of Salieri is horrifying in this movie. Like <laughs> I legitimately of. think he is a creature of nightmares. <laughs> it It is so uh-huh. frightening to me how much his face is sagging, but also in a way that's not natural. And his eyes are like, you can barely see his eyeballs because the prosthetic is covering them so much in his hand. I'm, People, so many people uh, criticize that J. Edgar movie for the prosthetics, which I think is justified. But how can you watch a movie like this and not talk about that? <laughs> it's weird and it's gross and it bothers me. <laughs> it's just it's it's quite horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, th- those are my three like little nitpicks. But um, yeah, I will just say those and, and we can move on. I don't know if any That's of funny. those resonate with you or if you can see where I'm coming from with that mm-hmm. or if any of those are extremely offensive to you. You're like, Tatum, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, I've, I'm very much, well, I, I think it's, you know, it's kind of the reverse of our million dollar baby where I was like, these things are nitpicks where I know if the movie connected with me more, I would mm-hmm. not have them. But because right. the movie is not connecting with me as much, my mind is focusing on these things. That's yeah. how I feel about certainly the makeup because I'm just like, well, that's just how old Salieri looks. So like, oh. you know, I can't <laughs> criticize it. That's just how old oh. Salieri looks. That's what he yeah. would. <laughs> like, I fully accept the reality of it, even though I can acknowledge that it, it does look pretty horrifying. It, it's 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 quite horrifying. <laughs> yeah. As for the, the first two, I mean, I will just say to me, you know, loving this movie, to me, this movie is the standard for how to use a framing device and to use narrative voiceover throughout the movie correctly, um, which clearly it does not, <laughs> did not work as well for you. Um, but for me, this is kind it's of the one that, that I was... It's not that it didn't work. It's just a little too much. Right, right. Yeah, I really like, I really like the way it is used. Um, I think partly because I love the fact that there is kind of a smaller second movie going on throughout in which basically this one priest who seems honestly a little bit inexperienced, I don't know if he really knows what he's doing, but, um, you know, he's going to try and he goes and sees this one guy and this one guy over the course of a night tells him a story that basically rocks his entire worldview. And that's just the entire relationship that happens between the two of them. And it's almost entirely wordless. I I should have looked up his name. I don't know who it is, but the actor who plays the priest 
is so fantastic to me in the way that he responds to what F. Murray Abraham is doing, because it's almost entirely in his face in all these little tiny expressions as he's trying to kind of, you know, placate Salieri or get on his good side. And then he horrified in one moment about what he's saying and then trying to be encouraging, but then like trying to figure out how to respond to something that he's appalled by. And and then over the course of the night, he's just progressively getting more dismayed and more like, oh, gosh, I actually don't know how to like respond to you. I actually don't know how to counsel you because you, you've you had this whole experience that is just completely outside of anything that I can, any advice that I can possibly offer to you. You know, all everything that I have is so inadequate. And then by the end of the night, Salieri's like, all right, now I've told you my story and I'm basically gone fully off the rails and I'm beyond hope. Bye. And the priest is just like, what just happened? And to me, that entire story is told through the faces of the two of them. And so much of it is in cutting back to... um. to their conversations and um i the the narrative the voiceover for me or the the cutback cuts back to them i think they do a good job of this is him conveying kind of checking in with how salieri is feeling at the time so it's not repeating information that we just saw acted out on screen it is let me convey to you additional information about how i'm processing what just happened or the plans that i am making or my reflections based on how i feel now about what happened so to me it's not redundant it's actually adding textual and subtextual information about what is going on that deepens your understanding and pushes the story forward. But there is a lot of it. I cannot deny that. So if it doesn't work for you, like, you know, I, I can't argue that again, there's a lot it's, of it. It's, again, it's not that it doesn't work for me. It's just, it's it's a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's redundant in terms of, you know, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. I think that every, you know, when we cut to him in the, whatever it is, mental institution, I don't know. And he's talking about what's happening in the past. I think that what he's talking about very perfectly complements what is, I don't think it seems like it's, oh man, you're just talking about something that we saw and it's redundant. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's redundant. I think it's just, it's not redundant in terms of it's repeating what we're seeing in the past. I Mm -hmm. feel like it's redundant in terms of we've seen you processing what happened in the past in the same way multiple times if that makes sense. Okay. Redundant in terms of in this scene, you're talking about how much you love music. And then in this scene, you're talking about how much you love music. And then in this one, you're talking about how Mozart's music is transcendent. Then in this one, Mm -hmm. you're talking about how Mozart's music is transcendent. And then in this one, you talk about how Mozart's music is transcendent. I'm like, (laughs) yes, we get it. You, you find his music to be transcendent. So I don't think it's redundant in terms of how it relates to Mm -hmm what happened in the past. I just think it's redundant in terms of we see him interpreting the same sort of takeaway from what happened in the past multiple times. I think he could have done it once or twice and it would have been fine. Yeah. I think I'm seeing more variety than you are in what those voiceovers are doing in tracking the... Yeah, maybe you are. Yeah, for sure. sort of progression of Salieri's feelings toward Mozart and his feelings Mm -hmm. toward 
himself and the, mm-hmm. the plans that he has and the things that he's processing. As to your second critique, I mean, again, I cannot deny what the fact- What was my second critique? Your second critique was that the opera sequences are too long. Oh, right. Again, I cannot deny that they are pretty long. All I can say is that I love them and they're perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just to me, like this movie, T- so Tatum and I were having a long conversation off mic um, the other night about what defines a musical and what is a musical mm, to mm-hmm. us. I mean, this movie is not a musical, but it hits for me a lot of the things that I love about musicals, which is just having almost standalone musical sequence that are so transporting. I just, mm-hmm. the the opera sequences, they don't need to be as long as they are in order to move the story forward. But I just find each of them so entrancing that I love them, you know, mm-hmm. like they're they're so weird looking, you know, this idea that like <laughs> this is what people paid to go and see is like these extremely artificial looking stages and these super bright colors and people standing at awkward angles and yet all of this emotion coming out of it. Like, I just think it's fascinating, you know, it's so and then seeing the contrast between the um you know the the whole movie we've been seeing opera in the form of this like very elevated this is opera for the nobility you know this is like the best that money can buy in terms of staging and costuming and everyone's very formal and and then we see at the end the opera for the the va- I guess it's not an opera it's a vaudeville you know where it's all like um fart jokes Pooping and horses. people falling down and things yeah. crashing into each other and yeah and it's just like so like vulgar and common but also really funny and just like there's so much energy to it and the common people clearly love it and i just find again that's so fascinating this you know bringing the past into the present or bringing the present back to the past like this idea that oh here's you know this whole movie we've been watching like um I don't know, we've been watching A24 movies being performed and now we're seeing like an Adam Sandler comedy. (laughs) Like, you know, this is just how human beings are. It's like there is entertainment for the quote, there's quote unquote high art, but then there's also like low art that is just stupid and super fun. And I don't know, I love it. (laughs) I love it so much. It's so weird. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, I feel like, so like I said in the beginning, I find this movie a lot more interesting to talk about in terms of like the themes and the questions that it's asking as opposed to what we're actually seeing. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's more so what we're doing here, which makes me happy because I feel like I can engage yeah. more. But um, I, yeah, let's talk a little bit about kind of that concept of, of high art and low art, mm-hmm. because I really loved that kind of awakening that Mozart has where his entire career he's been making and composing music for these very you know highbrow royalty people the high class citizens Mm -hmm. who they know what real art is but then when he's kind of down and out of luck and he recognizes you know regardless of whether I'm making music for people that are you know very um high class or low class music is still the only thing i'm able to do so at the end of the day like i'm just gonna make art for whoever my audience is sort of thing and i just really like how i mean maybe this is my own interpretation but i feel like the the music that he makes for the vaudeville i don't feel like the the movie is making it's not casting any sort of shame on what he is composing there i feel like it still communicates you know mozart is still a genius he's just making music for a different audience and i really liked how it kind of 
Well, I was going to say it kind of shows, quote unquote, like high art and low art in equal ways. I don't know if it necessarily does that, but I think it kind of shows that Mozart, that Mozart makes equal music depend like regardless of who the audience is. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I, I did, I did really like that kind of, uh, element added to the end of, Oh, wait a minute. Cause I didn't even realize really until we had that moment with the vaudeville and continuing on from there, I didn't even make notice that all of the music he'd been making prior was for the higher class people. I, I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, he's just making it and everyone's seeing it. But it wasn't until the contrast of what we saw later with the common people that I was like, oh, wait a minute. His music actually wasn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know. Yeah, like anyway. clearly it was filtering down to a certain extent because the vaudeville we see is like, it's all explicitly parodying the work of Mozart. So clearly there's some familiarity right. with it. But yeah, it's very much this is the the operas that are going in the big national theater that is endorsed by the emperor and you probably have to be at the very least someone in a pretty comfortable financial position class. yes <laughs> in order to be able to afford a ticket in order to go see it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I I love this theme which like there's a there's a scene that um really stuck out on me to me on this rewatch which is the the scene where he is trying to so when he is planning to write this um, opera, The Marriage of Figaro, which is based on this play that had been banned by the emperor because the emperor considered it to be too politically radical. And Mozart's like, no, 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 it's not radical. It's just It's silly. about love. Yeah. It's about love. <laughs> He's like, it's just fun. You know, I've just, and they're it's like, just a little again? trifle. <laughs> but there's this wonderful exchange where one of the emperors, and I can never tell them apart, there's like the nice guy who likes Mozart, but is a little uh-huh. concerned. And then there's like the snooty guy who doesn't like Mozart. But um, the nice guy who likes Mozart, but is like, not, you know, trying to help him out, but is not also not quite on board with his ideas. He's like, you know, we're not sure if this matter is appropriate. Like, and he's like, the purpose of art is to elevate us. And Mozart's Mozart has this amazing response where he's like, here, I wrote it all down. Which one of you wouldn't rather listen to his hairdresser than Hercules or Horatius or Orpheus? Mm. People so lofty, they sound as if they shit marble, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is amazing. But this idea that like, you know, art, there's this universal, you know, centuries long debate about is the purpose of art to, um, to show us loftier ideas and themes and bring humanity upwards or is the purpose of art to reflect something in daily life? And I think Mozart is kind of standing in contrast to that idea that, you know, art can only be about like, you know, Greek mythology or like biblical themes or like, you know, these great figures of, of Titanic, you know, proportions in the past. And Mozart's like, no, 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 you can create art out of normal life. You know, you can create art out of like a barber, you know, uh, a servant, a, a hairdresser, like, you know, take what is going to connect with daily people, take and create something beautiful out of that. Um, that thing, that that idea that he is bringing something new to the world of art in his time because of his vulgarity, like it specifically comes out of who he, he is as a person who is very down to earth, who is like, not afraid to go mingle with the people and like, laugh at their jokes and make fart jokes himself and you know um like party and like have fun and and get into trouble you know because he has that that aspect of it informs his art but then it allows him to then sort of 
create this this beautiful music that can kind of bridge the gap and can um yeah can really really be allowing people to see themselves or see their world reflected in this this musical uh, this music that he's creating and I don't know I love it so much and then you see you know he creates the opera the magic flute which is you know one of his most famous operas and that's it's this weird fantastical musical but it also has characters who are a bit more normal and and it the appeal that it has is much more of a an appeal to to the normal to the common people i guess um and so it's that idea of mozart and and what it is that he he was able to bring to the world that was genuinely new is like is that sort of art does not have to be this very exclusive, very only high class, only certain subjects thing. Art can be much more universal. I, going off of that a little bit, if we could, I'd like to talk talk a little bit about um, Mozart's relationship with his father. Please. Because I feel like his relationship with his father very clearly, you know, carries a big weight over Mozart's head and, and, <laughs> and plays a very key role in the music that he makes and, and why he makes it and who he shows it to and, you know, all of that stuff. And I, you know, I find it interesting because I feel like at a young age, I, you know, we don't really see him really when he's a kid other than just like, you know, a short sequence or a few short sequences yeah but I you know I wonder how much did he actually enjoy it in the beginning versus his father just kind of parading him around to because he knew what his son was capable of and you know then we see him as he gets older and because I almost feel like there's this sense of um like a child growing up in a in a situation where their parent is being super super strict and then once they get old enough to get out of the house, they kind of rebel a little bit. And they're like, mm-hmm. let me have fun, dad. You know, and the dad's <laughs> like, no, son. Um, and so I feel like we see a lot of that here. And I think, you know, it, it, it obviously plays a big role in even after his father dies, because we have lots of cuts to the painting on the wall with very formidable music playing. <laughs> and, you know, obviously Salieri kind of exploits his relationship with his father to get him to compose something and, and all of these things. So I just, I don't know. I want to talk a little bit about like how much do you see Mozart's music, at least in the context of this film, how much do you see him making music because he genuinely wants to versus making music because he feels like his, it's the expectation. He's trying to meet his father's expectations um, because we have a scene, I think, where um, where Constance or however the crap you pronounce her name basically says to him, like, nothing we ever do is enough for you. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's I just I find his relationship with his father to be very compelling. But at the same time, I feel like it's not super straightforward, but in a good way. I feel like there's lots of different ways to look at it and analyze it because his dad just kind of shows up sometimes and then Mozart freaks out and then he, you know, then he dies. And mm-hmm. anyway, um, yeah. 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 That, that's such an excellent question. And I, I, I was struck too at the, on this rewatch at the beginning, the contrast between Mozart's relationship with his father and Salieri's relationship with his own mm-hmm. father, because Salieri, his own father is this extremely non-musical, like not artistically mm-hmm. inclined. He's like some sort of merchant, you know, sort of, all business and capitalism and he just sees no reason for music whatsoever and so clearly he doesn't have any sort of like sympathetic 
you know, ability to connect with Salieri. But he also does um, call Mozart like a, a trained monkey. He's very contemptuous about this idea of Mozart being trotted out by his father to go touring around the world and performing tricks. And in a sense, I'm like, well, honestly, it's probably not wrong. You know, mm-hmm. it probably the way we see Mozart later, you know, as an adult He's clearly very emotionally stunted by the way that mm-hmm. his father has treated him. He yep. he will have, you know, a, as I said, he's very, he's not very good with people. <laughs> he can be very abrasive. He can also be very immature. He throws tantrums when he doesn't get his way at certain points. Um, he's just kind of mentally a child in many ways. And I think so much of that probably comes from the the really weird childhood that he had where he was forced to perform for all of these high class people and, and had all these expectations that his father placed on him. I do think based on what we see in the movie, I do think that his love of music and his sort of just all consuming desire to create music, I do think that's something that preceded what the way that his father brought him up I think that he would have been that way regardless but I think the way that he lives that out and the way that he lives his life is such a reflection of the relationship that he has with his father and that then affects the music that he creates if that makes sense Mm -hmm. like um I mean he he clearly has so much this conflicting desire to rebel against his father and be independent, but also this enormous sense of guilt because his father is disappointed in him, which I think a lot of us can, (laughs) you know, relate to. Like, that's a very universal experience of feeling like you need to be your own person from your parents, but also feeling like you have this obligation to them. And there's this, um, you know, the, the sense of confusion when those two things come into conflict. And I think that informs a lot of the way that he acts you know it's kind of going from one to the other wanting to please his father but also knowing that he needs to be independent of him and he um he he can't live up to the standards that his father sets yeah i mean one thing that i found myself asking while watching the movie this time around was and maybe this is just my own ignorance but i just found myself asking why is it that mozart is drinking Mm. You know, why won't he stop doing this? Because he has, it's just incredibly self-destructive for him. He's lost his status because of it. He's lost work because of it. He's losing his health bit by bit. He's losing his family bit by bit. And I just kept thinking, you know, why not like, why are you drinking as much as you are? And, you know, I just think that it is, he's just this this tortured soul and I feel like in a lot of ways he wasn't really I you kind of I think like you said he's a little bit emotionally stunted and so I feel like he doesn't necessarily know how to process Mm -hmm. what he's been through and so I think you know the way he processed that for a long time was through music but then I think maybe once he discovered alcohol he was like oh this is a this is a way that I can just kind of process what I've been through without actually having to deal with it you know and he just gets addicted to that concept of just you know not having to deal with his own issues and and it just spirals from there but you know it's at least for me it, it was very hard to watch him go down that path and you know that's a unfortunately a very common thing for for 
you know, very successful artists, you know, because a lot of them are very tortured souls. Um, But, you know, it's just hard to watch someone kind of fall from, I was going to say from the height of their talent. I don't think that's true because I think his art gets better the more, the more he starts to implode, which again is, is not necessarily uncommon. But um, yeah, I think that a lot of his, his drinking and therefore his death has more to do with his relationship with his father than it does Salieri, which is one thing I found interesting watching this. It it was kind of a point of confusion for me because I I felt like Salieri made this decision of, yes, I'm going to kill Mozart. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure he killed himself. Like, I Mm. think he would have died regardless of whether or not you asked him to compose this thing. So I found it interesting that the film kept trying to, I don't know, just insert this idea that Salieri was really trying to kill him when I was like, I don't, that just didn't fully connect for me because it seems like a kind of a poorly thought out plan on Salieri's part. <laughs> well, I think in this terms is... of like how he went about it, I was like, this yeah. doesn't, I don't know. I th- I don't know. This doesn't quite work for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's actually part of what the movie is doing is there is that kind of, I mean, in real life, to be clear, Salieri did not murder Mozart. <laughs> as far as we know. As far as we know, um, there is, to my knowledge, no <laughs> actual hard evidence to suggest that. But within when, within the movie, I think it's kind of doing this thing where it is ambiguous because Salieri is actively working to ruin Mozart's career. You know, he is going around and telling people not to hire Mozart he is using his influence to make sure that his operas get shorter runs, which means that he makes less money. Um, there are active steps that he's taking behind the scenes to try and hurt Mozart's career. And when that happens, that means that Mozart needs to work harder in order to work money. And so he works himself to, you know, he starts getting sick and he's all stressed. So he uses alcohol to manage the stress and that makes things worse. And it's just, you know, it's this whole spiral. It's just that Salieri is kind of nudging it along. But that does create this kind of gray area where anyone would look in and say, no, 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 you didn't like stab him or poison him or anything like that. You didn't actually murder him. But he in his sort of guilty, but also, you know, he feels like it's justified in, in a certain messed up way can be like, no, 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 I am the one who did that because I have been acting um, behind the scenes all along. But yeah, it's not like an actual like, he doesn't have a thought out plan of like, all right, I'm gonna get him to write this mass. And then I'm going to sneak up behind him on a dark night and bash him over the head or something like that. Like he never actually comes to that point because Mozart worked himself to death first. But Mozart works himself to death in part because of the things that Salieri was doing. And so there is that, again, kind of ambiguous gray area of like, objectively, no, he didn't kill him. But he kind of did, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so that kind of leads me to another. Th- this was a question I had um, after finishing the movie, because mm-hmm. this also could be like a nitpicky question, but it just kind of seemed a little bit strange to me how um, Constance, uh, Mozart's wife, how she kind of, you know, while Mozart is is spiraling out of control and really just going to this place of, you know, just crazy drunkenness and you know not really writing things that are getting anywhere and I feel like 
when he starts interacting with the vaudeville guy, mm-hmm. you know, she's kind of really pushing Mozart of, you know, you need to write stuff because we need money. You need to be writing and you need to stop doing these things and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of felt like she was really pushing him to write and she wasn't really acknowledging how unwell he was. And then she leaves, which I think she's justified in doing, but then when she comes back, she kind of gets mad at Salieri for him making him write when he's unwell. And I'm like, girl, that's what you've been doing for a long time. Just because you disappeared for a little bit and came back, that doesn't, like, you could have easily have killed him just as much as Salieri did by overworking him and, and asking him and pressuring him to write things when he was very clearly needing to see a doctor and rest (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I think that's I think that's too harsh on her I think it's more that she knows that he is not good with money she knows that he's Mm -hmm. super he's very frivolous he's very absent-minded he just he doesn't know how to you know deal with those sorts of business matters and so she feels like I need to step up and be the practical one I need to be the one who is keeping him on track I need to be the one who's reminding him that we need money or we are going to be out on the streets like we have a child to support we have bills that we need to pay these things need to happen and I think that sort of stress of dealing with a husband who is um you know, super talented, but has all of these responsibilities that he's not handling very well and is clearly falling apart. And, you know, at the time, no one knew really a whole lot about how psychology works or or the way that ways that grief and and depression can wreak havoc on the human mind. I think she just doesn't really know how to deal with it, Um, which is, I think, understandable under the circumstances. She does genuinely love him, but I think he she thinks that what he needs is this sort of tough love that will get him to stop these self-destructing things. And it's just, it, it, it's not helping. What are you? It's not, it's not that I dislike her as a character. It's just, I, I don't know. Maybe it's more so I dislike Amadeus and, and how much, there was nothing she could have done. I'm like, but there must have been something she could have done. There must have been something. It's like, but n- <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, sometimes there's just nothing yeah, you can do. Sometimes you just can't and, fix the problem. Yeah. And that's just the way that it is. Um, and also, I think part of me is just frustrated at the end. I'm like, no, this beautiful mm. piece of music, like, don't lock it away. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, she's not, I mean, she's not locking it away for like the universe for good. She's just. Yeah. You're not to work on it anymore until you have rested. But also Salieri's like, no, but I was going to steal that. I mean, uh, do you think he was? Oh, yeah. No, he explicitly says. So his plan at a certain point is when he commissions the mass, his plan is I'm going to commission this mass for Mozart and I'm going to kind of scare him into keeping it secret. And then once it's finished, I'm going to find some way to kill Mozart, TBD. And then I'm going to steal the mass and claim it as my own and play it at Mozart's funeral. And that's going to be the piece of music that everyone, I will become immortal for. I know that that was his plan. I think he changed his mind at the end. I don't think he actually would have done that. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a good question. He does, he does think, look very dismayed when she locks up the music. He's I mean, like, he, uh, he just had this euphoric evening of creation which Mm -hmm. i think is probably the most magical moment of creation he's ever had in Mm -hmm. his life with this person and i he kind of 
I don't know. I think it's this very profound moment of, like I said before, connection as artists and really just recognizing, you know, Mozart is not my enemy. Mozart mm-hmm. is my equal in this moment. And maybe Mozart is, is worthy of my, of my worship in this moment. You know, I think that any sense of, of competition is no longer in his body at that moment. I, I'm not saying that that maybe would like that, that wouldn't have changed maybe a day or a week later. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in that moment, I don't see him in a sense of like, Oh, don't destroy this thing because my plan was to take it mm-hmm. and play it at <laughs> Mozart's <laughs> funeral. I think it was more so like, Oh my gosh, we just created this miracle of a piece of mm-hmm. music. And what if, no one gets to hear it or what if it doesn't get finished like what does that mean and that's a tragedy that this work of art was not completed um yeah well it that experience that the two of them go through is so it is fascinating because it it seems like it could be under different circumstances if mozart hadn't died it could have been the start of some completely new era of their relationship this could have been the thing that finally broke down Salieri's barriers and allowed him to be willing to befriend Mozart and you know become some sort of a um a collaborator or or, um, helper to him you know allowed the two of them to actually have a, a friendly working relationship of course it didn't actually turn out that way but just you know, if Mozart had not died, there's, there's, it's hard to say, like, whether his heart would have kind of reheartened toward him or whether he would have softened and become something very different. And we'll never, we'll never know. We'll Question never for know. you What do you think is Mozart's relationship? Like, what do you think Mozart thinks about Salieri throughout the movie? Um, particularly. Do you think that he is as, like, what do you think he thinks of Salieri as a musician and then also just as a person? (laughs) As a musician, I think he thinks he's uh, very mediocre. Um, I I mean, we have moments where he's very clearly being like, oh, yeah, this is a nice start. But, uh, you know, it needs a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Doesn't that sound so much better? (laughs) Um, So I think that, well, I think that Salieri and Mozart both in a way, look at each other similarly in terms of, I think they both greatly admire each other. I just don't think that Mozart has the the hatred behind the admiration because yeah. I see, I see Mozart and this is my own interpretation. I'm not saying that there's a direct scene that says that this is the way that it is, but I, I do see Mozart kind of admiring Salieri in terms of, you know, he has this respect of these people and he's able to maintain this status and, and, stay successful and also be kind and have people like him which is something like you said that Mozart doesn't necessarily have no matter how hard he tries he always ends up messing it up or doing something stupid or saying something silly or whatever Um, and when he does succeed it's almost kind of by chance because he happened to say something (laughs) that maybe twisted it in a way that I don't know Um, but yeah I, I think that I think that if Mozart didn't trust and admire Salieri he wouldn't have sat down with him at the end and done this whole you know do you have it do you have it he would have just been like ah forget it like ugh, whatever I don't know I I I don't necessarily know at what point that transition happened between just kind of making fun of him and seeing him as this joke and then kind of transforming into something else 
Um, but you know, I think by the end we do see Mozart telling Salieri, I don't know exactly what the line is, but something, something similar to you've always been very kind to me and you've always cared for my work. You've always appreciated everything that I've made and thank you for that. And da, 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 da. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that there's any animosity in Mozart's heart towards Salieri. I think that he likes him. I think he respects him a lot, um, because he comes to recognize, Again, external process, so I'm arriving at things. But I think that he comes to realize Sal- the potential that Salieri has that Salieri won't see. I think that Mozart recognizes, like, you are not the best composer. You're just not. <laughs> but also, you are, like, I admire, like I said, you know, that you can have this status and have this career and have this respect of all these people and, and be able to write down musical notes as I tell them to you like that's amazing that's really important that's something that you have that I don't Mm -hmm. and I admire that whereas Salieri refuses to see that he's just like oh I'm amateur so I'm (laughs) gonna you know take down this other guy so I don't know I think it's I think it's this really interesting and complex relationship between the two of them where they both admire each other but in different ways and Mozart admires Salieri in a way that he can't see and um yeah, I don't know. That's very long answer to no, your question, yeah. <laughs> but that that's that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I agree. I think I think the question of Mozart's um attitude towards Salieri is a really interesting one because I mean it is clear that he does not think a whole lot of his music. Um, I mean, there's that amazing scene where, you know, Salieri performs his opera and it's this huge, like the climactic oh, triumph uh-huh. of his, his entire career and the emperor uh-huh. awards him a medal and tells him it's the best opera yet written. And then, um, which, uh, the, oh, the scene's so good. I love the fact that in the midst of this huge applause, all Salieri can do is look up toward the box where Mozart was sitting and it's empty because Mozart's left and he's, his face falls. You can tell he's devastated by the fact that Mozart mm-hmm. has left, but Mozart hasn't actually left left. He's just gone down to greet Salieri. But then Mozart, when he's like congratulating him, he's very carefully avoiding actually oh saying, gosh. I liked it and thought it was good. He's like, what else can one say when one sees this music but Salieri? And Salieri has this look <laughs> on his face where he's like, I don't know how to read that. No, I think he knows exactly how to read it. I think his reading is, uh-huh. you asshole. Yeah, I think he's like, I can tell you don't like it, but I'm just going to be polite. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I think Mozart clearly like does not think a huge amount of Salieri's music, but I, I also get the vibe, and I cannot remember whether this is based on something that is actually explicitly said in the movie or if this is me just kind of making something up, but I get the sense that Mozart thinks he is the only person who, in the world who realizes that Salieri's music is only mediocre and doesn't have a huge oh, amount of confidence in it. Yeah, this is, again, this might be just me completely making this up, but my sense is that Mozart is like, yeah, I don't really get what everyone sees about this guy's music, but everyone else seems to like it. I might be wrong. So I'm just, and this guy seems like, okay, so I'm just going to like, you know, go along with it, which I find really... I. I've- not I realizing mean, that like his because he has no filter like his sort of dismissiveness is very apparent to Salieri and is very hurtful to Salieri. Yeah, I I yeah, I think Mozart definitely has this perspective of oh, he's not a threat to me. Yeah. He's like I'll I'll, I'll let him do his thing if he wants to make operas and mm-hmm. and compose stuff and give it to emperors yeah. like whatever, like I'm not concerned. Yeah. <laughs> but what I find so interesting about it 
too, though, is that there is this second layer where Mozart does seem to genuinely want Salieri's approval. You know, he he gets approval from, you know, he gets compliments from the emperor, but no one really has any sort of high opinion of the emperor's uh, taste when it comes to music. Like, you know, that's who, who no. cares? That, that man's an idiot when it comes to music. Um, yeah. But when Salieri compliments him on something, he seems really genuinely moved by it and i think you know there could be a little bit of displacement of like you know i want this <laughs> i want approval from an older father figure that i'm not getting from my actual father so the fact that salieri who is this older sort of potential mentor figure at the court who's been around longer who is very well liked very well respected the fact that he is complimenting my music i think genuinely means a lot to mozart and so well, oh go ahead kind of kind of similar to something that i think you and i both have said throughout this podcast I I think that Mozart similar to you he recognizes that Salieri is a very gifted musical critic Mm -hmm. I don't think he thinks that Salieri is stupid when it comes to music as a as a whole Mm -hmm. I think he's just like you can't compose great things yeah (laughs) but that doesn't mean that you don't have anything to contribute I think he has a lot of respect for Salieri and his musical abilities in terms of his knowledge and his appreciation and his love for the craft and all of those things. So yeah, I I can totally see how he would just kind of admire him in in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact that their relationship ends on the note of, you know, this incredible transformative creative experience that they have together where Mozart is dictating this music that is coming straight out of his head and Salieri Salieri is just struggling to write it down but there's a sense I mean Salieri is not doing the work of the creation but he is collaborating in the you know transcribing of this music but then at the end they have this really really sad sweet conversation where Mozart apologizes to Salieri, which is like a a complete shock, I think, to Salieri to get this perspective of how Mozart has been feeling this whole time, where he says, I'm really sorry, I thought that you didn't like me. Um, Like, I I thought that you didn't care for my work. And he asks for forgiveness from Salieri. And it's just like, this mind blowing layer of these things that Mozart had been processing this whole time, you know, the this the relationship between the two of them, I think, is so much based on misunderstandings of the two of them, you know, the signals that they're giving out being heard by the other one, but also misunderstood in a way. And again, with the kind of the idea of this movie being a tragedy, there is this world in which they could have been able to communicate clearly and they could have had some sort of productive relationship and it just was never to be. I'm very glad they never dated. That would have been, (laughs) that would have been a disaster. (laughs) Um, I honestly did have a, a a thought at the end, you know, when they're doing this collaboration, I'm like, this is so intimate. It's like, it's not quite sexual, but it's almost sexual in a way. Like these two men, like, Hey, they care about this music so much. And this is like bringing them together. Mm-hmm. Art taps into things that people just don't even know. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, are we making out? That's weird. Because um, <laughs> speaking that of happen? someone who's had so many experiences. <laughs> like that, um, Let me quickly go through my extremely long, like eight and a half pages of notes. Eight pages. <laughs> <laughs> that is not um, a joke, guys. Geneva has eight I and a half so many pages notes. of I mean, notes. this is a long movie, to be fair. But there's also a lot here. 
Um, yeah, let me just go through and see what the other major things that I wanted to talk about. Definitely, I wanted to give a word of appreciation for the performance of Jeffrey Jones as the Emperor, Emperor Joseph II, <laughs> which mm-hmm. um, separating him as a person. Let's not talk about that. But um, I don't know anything about him as a person. Yeah, don't look it up. It's fine. Um, I just know he was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's it. Yeah, he's great in that too. Um, but I, he is so funny as the emperor. I just, I just love the the performance of the emperor. How his people will tell him things, and he's just kind of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> the way he processes and his sort of. It is kind of hard to tell. Like he, he, he clearly has no musical taste and thinks he does, and everyone just kind of humors him. But he also does seem a little bit. You know, people will flatter him and he kind of has this smile on his face where he's like, I have this all set up so you guys will flatter me and I like it, but I also know that it's flattery and I'm not actually paying too much attention to it, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just love the character. He, the I find he strikes me as someone with not much going on between the ears. That, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's that's what he strikes me as. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, he's he's a pretty good boss. You know, he's... Um, He's he's nice enough to his co-workers, although he is clearly not at all musically talented. It's so funny how he is, he will have these, sort of draw these lines in the sand, and then as soon as he sees something which is shiny, he's like, ooh, but I want that, though. You know, he's like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. going to ban ballet for, in my operas for some weird reason. But then he flip flops a lot. Then Mozart, all Mozart has to do is show him what it looks like without the ballet, and he's like, "But look at it! It's so ridiculous!" All right, let me just go back against my word and and bring put the ballet back in. Like I, I want my nice, fun opera with ballet in it. Um, let me see, Salieri. I love the running, um, aspect of his character throughout the movie. That because he has dedicated himself to chastity. He has his one indulgence in life is that he has this sweet tooth and he's just constantly following his nose around. <laughs> like he goes mm-hmm. to a fancy party and he just starts following the food, which is very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaks into a room and starts um, just snacking on things unobserved. And that's how he first sees Mozart, um, which is great. I mean, we have, we've barely even talked about Mozart's laugh, which is just such an iconic part of his character. It's pretty annoying. It's so <laughs> annoying. It's so good. Uh, man. Isn't it like, isn't it literally the last sound we hear in the movie? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. 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 It's like just borderline Joker. Borderline Joker. Well, funny you should say that because... Because um, in... Jared Leto was in the running to play. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Mark Hamill actually was in the running oh, to play. really? He played Mozart on stage, I think in, I want to say in LA. Also, Tim Curry played him on stage. Um, fun fact, and uh, I believe Ian McKellen played Salieri on stage. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's some some really great actors who play these characters on stage. Um, let me see, man. There's just oh, there's so much. Just looking through my the the humor of um Salieri writing his little welcome march to Mozart and looking at the crucifix and being like, "Grazie, signore!" Like, thank you for giving me this amazing musical talent, and then. He plays it for Mozart, and Mozart's like, oh, this is, like, fine, but I could make it so much better. <laughs> and then the hard cut to him looking furious, and he go, looks at the crucifix, and he goes, grazie, signore. It's so funny to me. Um, the whole sequence um, where Mozart gives his first, op- uh, you know, performs his first opera, and the emperor's like, 
I don't know. It's fine. It's just there's there's too many notes. <laughs> Mozart's mm-hmm. like, I don't understand. What are you talking about? <laughs> and the emperor's like, What's I don't know. Mean? Just like cut a few and then it'll be perfect. Um, also speaking of amazing, <laughs> amazing editing in this movie where um, toward the end as Mozart is like after Constance leaves him and his mother-in-law is like scolding him. She's like, yes, I told her to get out and go to the spa. And like, I don't know how she's put up with you all this time. And then you can see the camera kind of pushes in on her face as her voice gets higher and higher. And then it transforms into the Queen of the Night aria, which is a very famous mm. aria that um, mm-hmm. is in the uh, the magic flute and is basically like within the context of the opera is basically like a mother scolding her daughter it's it's mm-hmm. so good it's so good i, I forgot so about much. that yeah that's pretty great yeah the speech that mozart or uh, sorry that salieri gives when he looks at the mozart's um work that constance gives him and learns that it's all originals and he's like it says, music finished as no music had ever been. Displace one note and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase, the structure would fall. I was staring through the cage of those meticulous ink strokes at an absolute beauty. Oh, it's just so beautifully written. I love the dialogue in this movie so much. I don't even know if it's dialogue. I think it's more so just monologues. Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, the moment... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just like going through my notes and listing every moment that I love in this movie the moment where mozart is at the party with his dad and his dad's wearing that mask that salieri will later wear that's like two masks where one side is frowning and one side is smiling where he sees mozart does something really obnoxious and then he looks over at his dad and he sees the dad's like the mask is frowning and he's like oh no and then he the dad turns his head and it's smiling and mozart's like oh good and then the dad takes off the mask and he's frowning (laughs) and mozart's like oh no (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I've barely even talked about this yet, but just how much I love the editing in this movie and the way that the music is constantly going in and out and the way it's depicted as kind of running as not just the soundtrack to the movie, but it's the score that's running in the characters' heads at all times. You know, there are moments where the score is playing, but you can tell it's not background music. It is, this is what Mozart is hearing in his head. Like, there's this one moment where his dad, he's having some sort of family argument with his dad and his wife and him, and he just goes into his study and he shuts the door, and you can hear the argument fading in the background, and the the score is rising up as he's going back to, to writing, and... Oh, it's just so well done. It's so beautiful. Um, the part where, again, with, with Salieri being amazing as a appreciator of art, as an art critic, the, the scene where he describes the, um, the marriage of Figaro and how, you know, he's, the, the woman is disguised in her maid's clothes and she's hearing her husband saying the first kind words that he said to her in years and she's singing this this beautiful song of absolution that's just what's he say um i heard the music of true forgiveness filling the theater conferring on all who sat there perfect absolution and it's just oh that's beautiful beautiful way to describe the power that art can have to just transcend and bring you know elevation to everyone who experiences it it's it's amazing Okay, I think that's all my notes from the the majority of the the movie. Um, so yeah, you wanted to talk about the ending and this idea of Mozart getting unceremoniously buried in basically a mass pauper's grave. 
Yeah, I mean, I just, like I said, you know, a lot of the, I, I, with this movie, I, I more so connect to a lot of just the questions that it's asking and the themes and things like that. And I just love movies or stories in general that kind of meditate on this thought of, you know, what happens to your art after you're gone. And that's one of the reasons why I love Banshees and, you know, lots of other stories. And I just, I I feel like there's something to be said here for how Salieri, again, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the, the differences and the similar similarities between Salieri and Mozart. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's this whole thing of Salieri wanted to be Mozart his whole life and Mozart ended up dying and just having his body thrown in a grave with everyone else. But, and then he's going to die in a way where he probably has, you know, a a procession or a ceremony Mm -hmm. or something like that. Like people will attend his funeral is what I'm saying, but it's like, you know, at, at at what cost, which one is better, which one Mm -hmm. is worse. And I think it's, I don't think one is better or one is worse. I think it's just, I, I don't know. I think that it just shows that, you know, whatever dreams that you have, no matter how talented or how mediocre you are, you know, at the end of the day, it's not, it's, I don't even know what I'm saying. It all but ends in the grave. Yeah. Like it, it just, it all ends in the same way and everyone is equally as great or equally as ungreat when they're dead because their mm-hmm. bodies just are are just bodies that wither away to not being bodies anymore and I just I like the idea that this whole movie is Salieri putting Mozart on this pedestal of this is just the epitome of artistic musical experience like this is the pillar I want to make it to this place like his whole life he's just working after this thing but the movie kind of counteracts everything that he's working toward and kind of pointing the finger at him and being like, hey, dude, this whole thing that you've been super pissed about your whole life is not actually what you think it is because you can achieve all of these things, but it's not going to give you what you think you're asking for. And I think it just, it leaves this interesting final note of just I, I calling Salieri out and just being like, you wasted your whole life striving for this thing that at the end of the day is not what you think it is because you're just going to be a body in the ground, Mm -hmm. which is not me to say that, you know, music and and legacy of art doesn't necessarily matter because obviously there's people like Mozart that have created art that has existed and continues to exist and maybe will exist forever, you know, And, and I'm not belittling that. And that definitely is, you know, a huge thing that can happen, but those are types of things where like, yeah, it'll carry on, but you're not going to see it. So, mm-hmm. you know, how are you living today? You know, and, and it's not, it's not worth it if you accomplish all of these things that you want, or if you're wasting your life trying to accomplish this thing that you want, if at the end of the day, you've wasted your whole life pursuing it and you haven't actually lived, mm-hmm. which I guess is kind of what I'm getting at. I feel like Mozart was able to live. Therefore his body being thrown in the ground in the way that it was is not a tragedy. Whereas I feel like Salieri, he didn't, or he didn't live his life. And so even though at the end, he's still living as a very old, horrifyingly looking old man (laughs) who's absolving people of their sins. Like, yes, he lived to an old age, but his life was a lot more of a waste in my opinion than Mozart's was, even though he lived, you know, over twice as long. 
Um, so I don't know. I feel like that, that last shot of Mozart in a way, it, it does feel like a tragedy of, oh my gosh, this great, you know, pedestal of an artist and that's where he's going. How sad, but it's also in my mind, I'm like, why, why is our initial reaction to think that that's sad? Why do we think that that's sad? Because he lived well, I mean, obviously he was very sick and self-destructive for the last portion yeah, of his life. Yeah, honestly, and- I don't I don't know if I would say that he lived in a sense. Like he he did create I, something that will last. I think he lived last. more than Salieri did. I guess that's what I'm saying. I think yeah. he lived more I mean, than Salieri yeah, did. Yeah, if it's a competition, sure. I, I would not wish the life that Mozart had on someone else. The legacy, sure. But the life itself, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, I mean, this is what uh, this is what I love about this movie is th- these are the things that it makes me think about this idea. Yeah, of exactly. What is what is the thing that you are living for? What is the purpose of for which you're trying to create something larger than yourself? What does it mean to have something of you live on after death? Does that make the things that you go through in life worth it? Like these are the these are the the questions that it's explicitly asking. And they're they're mm-hmm. difficult questions, you know. There is no simple answer to them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I agree with that, which I think is why I just reached the point where it's like, you know, just do what you can to enjoy your life and and live up to your potential and what whatever that looks like for you, and create a safe and and happy space around you to you to the extent that you can um and if that means success in a traditional sense great if it means success in a non-traditional sense great um but just like live your life as well as you can now because at the end of the day we're all going to the same place like regardless of how accomplished we are or not accomplished so i don't know i just like how this movie i think talks so much about legacy and and Mm -hmm you know, uh, success and, and fame and all of these things and accomplishing dreams. That's the whole theme of this movie. But then it ends in a way where it's like, yeah, but does it matter? And well, I don't, I, I definitely agree with you in the sense that, you know, in, in the end, we all go to the same place. I don't know that I would say the movie is saying that that doesn't matter because... Oh, no, I didn't say doesn't. I said, does it matter, like, as a question. Okay. But does it matter? Okay. Yeah, because for me, you know, I, I read the ending as this sort of... There is this kind of... In in the sense that the movie is setting up that Mozart was never fully appreciated in his life, which, I mean, I don't know that that's really historically accurate, but within the con- story that the movie is telling... There is that sort of indignity of the artist is never, never appreciated in his own time, and he did not receive the financial compensation or the, um, the the perks or the um, the acclaim that he really should have. But you know, the movie starts with that great scene where Salieri is trying to play his pieces, some of his old music, to the priest, and the priest is like, "I don't know what that is," and then he plays Mozart, and the priest is like, "I know what that is." You know, there is that sense permeating through the movie that Mozart is immortal. He does live on and he has this incredible place in the lives of so many people that he would never live to see because of what he created. And I don't know, I do think there is something very sad but beautiful in that contrast of 
this is the way that his physical body was treated in the end, but also this is what he was able to achieve beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yes, I agree with you that that it's it's sad, but I also think that you know, in terms of you saying that part of that tragedy is is recognizing that you know, at least in the context of this movie, he wasn't compensated in the way that he deserved or he wasn't appreciated in the way that he deserved. I don't actually think that that's true. I think that he was, but I think that he ruined it on Mm. his own terms. I think he was in a place where he was being appreciated and he was being compensated to the level that he did deserve. But because of his own decisions, he... He, he was responsible for his own don- downfall, in my opinion. So I think like that in and of it, like that is tragic, you know, that he was at this level and then he came down and this is where his body is now. But I don't think for me, the tragedy isn't in he wasn't appreciated in his time. I think it's more so, you know, look at what he did to kind of end up where he where he ended up at the end of the day. But, you know, yeah, but his but that's where I get to that same question of like, does it matter or does it not? Because his music carries on. Like, obviously, that's huge. His music carries on and people know it centuries, centuries, centuries later. Um, but, you know, and it's like, is that what matters? Or does it matter that he, you know, it's just there's all of these different concepts about what it means to make great art, to be a great artist. Mm-hmm. And how much does that matter yeah. when your life is falling apart or if your life is super yeah. successful? Or if you're dead, or if you're, you know, like, yeah, like that's what I mean. Does it matter? Like, I think regardless of any of these circumstances or any of these elements that we're talking about, for me, the takeaway from this movie is asking the question, does it matter? And the way that you answer that particular to each person, why, like, Mm -hmm. why does it matter or why does it not in whatever areas you answer those questions? Um, which I think is great. I, I think it's, I think it's amazing. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, like I said, I connected a lot more with Mozart than Salieri. So I, I found, I found his, his conclusion in the story to be a lot more interesting than Salieri's because Salieri's at the end, I was just like, I, you suck. You, you are this old and you are still having this pity party. I can't take it. Um, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. I, I, I really love the profound, awfulness of the idea of as Salieri describes himself basically you know he lived for decades after Mozart uh, died again this is the story that the movie is setting up I'm not saying anything about Mm -hmm. the real Salieri who was you know this is not a reflective of his life but the movie Salieri basically living for decades afterwards a with the guilt of feeling like he has killed this person who was capable of producing music that is absolutely unlike anything else anyone else is able to produce but also of seeing what paltry work he was able to create getting more and more irrelevant with each passing year and people just basically seeing himself become extinct in real time and that sort of slow motion tragedy the the story of both of them is a tragedy in a certain way Mozart because he he burns so bright but so um, he burned out so quickly, you know, the fact that he had, he could have done so much more with his life and he never got the chance to, that is so sad, but also this idea of living such a long life and 
seeing be seeing and being powerless to stop your own irrelevance is also so sad and i find that so fascinating and horrible i have so much admiration for f murray abraham and tom hulse in these two roles the two of them are so incredibly brilliant in my opinion they're they're great actors who have enjoyed in, in other things but these are just these roles are just absolutely you know they are Salieri and Mozart to me you know and yeah. F. Murray Abraham in particular I mean we'll, we'll talk in a minute in about the um, awards that this movie won but just the the so the different emotions that flicker across his face at different points the way that his character you know the emperor will will ask him something and he clearly thinks the emperor is an idiot but he's trying to be politic and not offend anyone in his answer mm-hmm. and so he'll say some elaborate workaround thing and then mozart is like you know so plain spoken he's like wait what are you talking about no that's wrong what do you, what mm-hmm. um or like the moments where Mozart will say something thoughtless to him and, you know, not clearly not realizing that it's coming off as offensive or not realize thinking that Salieri would pick it up on pick up on it. And Salieri just gets this look on his face where he's just shocked and clearly extremely stung, but is trying to hide it. It's it's just so good. The two of them are so good. Yeah. All right, we got to wrap this up. We really do. So, all right. This movie, um this movie actually was a box office hit. I read some statistic that it's within the last it like I'm sorry. What? This this document oh. it says $90. It grossed 90, 90 million to be clear. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, gross, $90. There's a huge hit, ninety whole dollars. Box office, but globally, it made yes. ninety dollars in 1910. That was uh... <laughs> no. This actually was within the last like 40 years of Best Pictures. This is one of the movies that has been the most financially successful of all the movies that have you won Best Picture. You said it's ninety million. Ninety million dollars worldwide. Okay. Yeah. Um, Metacritic currently has it at 88. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 89. percent the movie was nominated for a total of 11 Oscars, and it won eight of them. So it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for F. Murray Abraham, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, and Best Sound. Additionally, I would say it deserved all of those. I 100% agree. Yep. It was also nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Editing, which I wish it had won, and also it was actually nominated for two best actors. So F. Murray Abraham won, but Tom Hulse was also nominated for best actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I did pull a quote from one really, I thought, thought very beautiful essay on this movie from a writer named Karen Hahn on the website Brightwall Darkroom. And so she writes, in the end, each narrative thread in Amadeus comes together without dismissing uh, dismissing or diminishing any of the others. There's the rivalry, the court intrigue, the domestic struggles, fact and fiction. All of it coalesces for the sake of the music. Both Mozart and Salieri are treated with intense tenderness, the former for what he was able to create, the latter for what he was able to hear. So I thought that was just a, a very beautiful way of describing something that actually... One thing we didn't talk about, but a a quote that really struck me rewatching it this time around, where Mozart is trying to make the case for this uh, opera he's trying to write, and he's talking about how many different um, singers he's going to have singing at the same moment. Like, how long can I can sustain this? I'm going to have 20 people singing at the same time. But he says, you know, in a play, when people are all talking at the same moment, it's just chaos. You can't hear anything. 
But in music, you can have so many different singers going on at the same time, and it's not chaos, it's harmony. You know, this idea that music is this force that is able to bring together all these chaotic and disparate elements and weave them together into some beautiful larger whole. And I just think that's a, yeah, a really, really beautiful thought. You actually made me think of this by saying uh, harmonies and all the voices Mm. that uh, I don't know the name of this concerto. I think it's a concerto, but um, the moment in this movie when it starts playing that one song and it Mm -hmm. made me think of Bright Star when the, like the human choir is singing that. uh, I don't know what the name of that concerto is. I think it's a concerto, but um, yeah, that's just all I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, this is nice with instruments, but also. How with about singing voices? voices, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> that, this will not surprise you, but that is my mom's favorite moment in Bright Star, which... That is, does not surprise me at all. Yeah, it's a great moment. All right, so final thoughts. Um, I, I don't even know if I have any more final thoughts because I've already talked so much about this movie and what I love about it and how personal it is to me. But um, yeah, this movie is great. There's just so many things. Every time I come back to it, I see something new. Um it speaks to me as a person and my cons- questions, the questions I love to ask about sort of existential purpose and um, meaning in life, but also questions about the purpose of art and what art can do in our lives and how art can be um, created, but also analyzed and experienced and mitigated and viewed through each other's eyes and things like that. So, yeah. And uh, also, I didn't really say this before, but this movie is also really funny. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, it's not a sort of stuffy period piece. I feel like it's very much the forerunner to something like The Favorite, you know, where you're taking the sort of visual tropes of the period piece, but you're you're making it very modern and weird and fun and down to earth. Marie Antoinette. Yeah, Marie Antoinette could definitely be a, a descendant as well. Um so I feel like this movie is very influential in those ways as well. So if you're intimidated, it is, it is a long movie, but I I think it's a fun watch. But anyway, any any final thoughts from you? Um, No, I mean, I, I won't really add more to anything that I said because I feel like I talked about it super in depth. So I guess I'll just briefly say I just really like the questions that this movie asks and what it makes me think um, because I think that it's asking a lot of things that are very important to think about artist or not. Um, And I think that's, you know, one of the great things about this movie is that it's, I guess maybe directly about art, but indirectly about just being a human that lives on earth. Um, So yeah, I, yeah, I just like the questions that it asks and how it makes me think about life and art. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to share with our audience what we're going to be covering next week? Yes. So next week, we will be discussing a satire made by uh, my favorite director of all time, uh, Stanley Kubrick. So we will be we will be talking about Dr. Strangelove, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. I think that that's the the whole title. Let me just double check. I think that's what it is. Let me see. Yeah, I got that right. Heck yeah, I did. Um, So yeah, this is uh, a a favorite of mine. This movie is so great. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking about it. This is another (laughs) one that I only watched for the first time within the last year or so. And so I'm I'm very excited to get a chance to revisit it. It's a classic. I feel like as far as Stanley Kubrick movies go, this is not one that 
as many people have seen as much as some mm. of his other films. Um, but I think that's a tragedy. I think more people <laughs> should see it because it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, um, yeah, we'll be talking about Dr. Strangelove next week. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time. Thank you.